This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get him out. Listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast, episode twelve, with myself, Hank, and Bindu. Hey, those bombs seemed an age falling. I found myself praying feverishly that I should not be hit, or at least not maimed. Once more, there came the splitting detonations in my ears, the scream of flying fragments, and the grisly silence after. Then the dust and the cries of the wounded. When I got to my feet, my legs were trembling so that I could hardly stand, my voice shaking so much that I could scarcely call to my platoon. But they had been spared again. One man was cut in the forehead by a piece of rock, and so shaken by the blast he was sick all day. A bomb had burst a few feet from him. Two of my mules were dead. Another had run away but was soon recaptured. I was astonished at the docility of the mules during the bombardment and after. One had a bomb fragment through the shoulder— but carried his load through the next two days' operations with no sign of pain or fatigue. The Bandera had been very lucky, losing only two legionnaires killed and three wounded badly enough to need evacuation. Elsewhere, the carnage was heartbreaking. Over 500 casualties, including 156 killed in less than five minutes. Our sister Bandera, the 16th, had suffered severely, losing one of their best company commanders, whose foot was taken off at the ankle by a bomb splinter. The whole of the mountain was like some nightmare abattoir, with disemboweled horses, shreds of human flesh and clothing, severed limbs, and broken pieces of equipment strewn around. That was an excerpt from Mine Were of Trouble, a 1957 publication, uh, a memoir, first part of a three-part trilogy, basically, going over the life and times and military career of a gentleman named Peter Kemp, who was a Cambridge-educated law student who entered into the military world foray by enlisting as a volunteer in the Spanish nationalist cause during the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, This is obviously one you've been hounding me to read forever. (laughs) I I literally just finished it today because it's actually a pretty short book. So I I, Mm -hmm. I was able to, I think it's 156 pages. Is that what it took a quick peek there? About 160, yeah. Yeah, 160 pages. So very, very short book. Again, it's the first part of the trilogy. Later, Peter Kemp goes on to serve in the Special Operations Executive World War II. You know a little bit about that. Yes, and actually he was in... I don't know if you'd call it the British colonial office, but he was basically a British attache to um, French and Indonesian uh, colonial sort of offices, I guess, in uh, French Indochina and Indonesia after the uh, after the Second World War. And actually, after that, he had a quite a long and vibrant career as a, a journalist. He was in Hungary in '56. He was in the Congo and. Uh, the 60s and also uh, the, back in the Philippines in the 60s and uh, he was in Vietnam in the 70s and allegedly in Nicaragua in the 80s. He had he lived to like 93 and he yep. worked basically into his 80s. 1993, so yeah. uh, pretty colorful life. Do you remember again what the, uh, the second book was called? Yes, the second book is called um, 
No Colors or Crest, and the third book in the trilogy is Alms. Alms for Oblivion. For Oblivion. And we will cover both those eventually. Great. So we're going to focus on uh, Peter Kemp's experiences in the Spanish Civil War, which is a very interesting topic that I didn't know a heck of a lot about going in. I, you know, vaguely I've heard about some of the more, I guess holistic aspects of it obviously it was a conflict between right-leaning factions the nationalist factions and the left-leaning republican factions precursor to the second world war in terms of military tactics and stuff so i i'm more familiar with a lot of the propaganda um that came out of the bombing of guernica and uh, as also not not just the the propaganda thing but also the the effects it, it could have on civilian populations and mindset and the, it was basically the first time we really saw a concentrate, concentrated, excuse me, it was really the first time we saw a concentrated saturation bombing of what could be interpreted as a civilian center, or at least it was it was reported as such, and uh, had some pretty significant implications to the future of air power in terms of you know anybody studying military history has probably heard of the bombing of Guernica, so that was kind of the extent. I knew of the war. I kind of knew that, like, Franco won. Francisco, Francisco Franco won the war. And uh, that was basically my the extent of my knowledge um, in regards to this war. And, I, oh, yeah, I guess I should add that there was also uh, international involvement in this war in the form of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, lending support to the nationalists, and more commonly known i guess in military history circles is the international brigades and international assistance and soviet assistance um on the republican side that being said though it's a bit of a, a complex complex war and before we get into like get the book itself um you're a bit of a shinny on it yes i'm i have a weird obsession with this war it's M- like much as you do with rhodesia yeah, yeah. It is. i was just gonna say it's like your rhodesian yeah more. So this mm-hmm. is this is Bindu's wheelhouse. So yeah, uh, I guess I should probably just give a slight background to why the war happened. Yeah. Basically, in 1931, the Spanish threw out their king and created the Second Spanish Republic, which is a democracy that, or let's just say, a political environment that makes the Weimar Republic look like a healthy democracy. There was non-stop political violence, assassinations, riots, coups, workers' strikes. Like, it was it was insane. And in 1936, um, a left-wing coalition called the Popular Front was elected, who put in a very radical constitution, really sort of pushing basically socialism, and really went after the church and other things which outraged the sort of conservative half of Spain. And in response to this, there was an attempted coup in both the Spanish Protectorate of Morocco and the Spanish, like, Spain itself, by two right-wing generals, Francisco Franco and Mola, and some other Confederates, uh, Confederates meaning, you know, compatriots of theirs, not Confederates as in the American Civil War. I was just about to ask. Is that that actual, like... Sorry, is that an actual... Civil War, Spanish Civil War term, because there's a lot of no, no, terms. no, no. It's I, I'm just meaning like Confederates, as in like right. compatriots, okay, like gotcha. as 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 the term originally. But yes, this sort of basically this coup was launched, and the coup 
failed in taking Madrid. It failed in overthrowing the government. But it went far enough that basically like a civil war, like there was no turning back. And yeah, after the the Germans and the Italians gave Franco, because he took over almost immediately in Morocco, um, gave him enough troops to planes to get his troops across the Mediterranean because the Republic uh, the Republic controlled the Navy. They gave him enough planes to get his army into Spain. After that, it was basically the war was on. Right, and and Morocco at this stage had been a solidly Spanish colony since the 1926 reform. Yes, right. yeah, it was, it, yeah, I, I think the actual term was protectorate, but yeah, no, it was it was a colony of theirs. Yeah. Lots of Spanish people lived there. Uh, the best fighting forces during the war, and a large reason why the Nationalists won, was the Army of Africa, which was commanded by Francisco Franco, which is basically, the modern day would, equivalent would be if, like, this won't happen, but if America had a civil war and, like, all the soldiers who'd been fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan came back battle-hardened and brought a bunch of the Arab and, like, Pashtun guys who they'd been fighting with back yeah. with them to help them fight. Like, yeah, it was battle-hardened colonial troops versus, like, left-wing militias. That sounds like a... That's an oversimplification. They both... Right. This isn't the Russian Civil War where there's, like, a million different sides, but, like, both sides in this... There's only two... Spanish Civil War, but both the sides are very diverse, and we can get into that. But basically, long story short, that's how the war began. Kind of went on a tangent there. A bit of a shit show, and I guess it's coming back into the public psyche of a lot of people. Yes. As far as the political strife that we're dealing with in 2021. At the time of recording this, um, there's still ongoing fallout in the United States from the Capitol riots on... Uh, January 6th, there's still ongoing fallout from the like Black Lives Matter riots the year before. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff and I guess a lot of people kind of compare us to almost I I guess it comes more from right-wing circles but it's like, you know, we're we this is Weimar Germany 2.0 and it's it's this is our yeah. this is our I our I do I do this is our round of political violence yes, right I do and, hear occasional uh, from left wing circles as well okay. too it's not I, I often say guys in I think I said this in the New Year's episode that mm-hmm. I emphasize that you can read anything into historical events so there isn't a big point in looking at like a grand overarching narrative right. but I do think that you can tell from this war there's a lesson about the dangers of political partisanship and what it got because. This is one of the few wars in human history that literally starts over, like, just plain ideological. It's not World War Two or one where it's about, like, territory. And most wars are over, like I guess you'd consider, like, material resources. concerns. Yeah. Even things like the Russian Civil War, like, the Russian... It's a little bit of class. Class, yeah. Danger, and the fallout of World War One. This was really people, like, were driven by beliefs to kill each other. And there were class problems and everything in Spain, too. But, yeah, it's it's an interesting war. Very much is. Right. And you you mentioned this to me before we started, in, in reference, again, to the current political strife. And I, I guess every era of history has their political strife and political violence. Um, oh, absolutely. Small potatoes compared to how this war started yeah no this like a funeral basically yeah Yeah, well one of the the opening shots of this war was when a a right-wing politician who is a member of i think the 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 sida which were the was the uh 
a coalition of sort of conservative and monarchist parties was literally like policemen came up to his house and said, can you get into the car? We need to take you to the station to, to just routine questioning. And he said to his wife, I'll be home in a few hours, darling, providing these gentlemen don't kill me. And he, he jokes, ha, ha, ha. And then literally as soon as he gets in the car, they shoot him in the back of the head, Godfather style. Yeah. And then at his funeral later, pol- um, was which was attended by many phalangists, which were basically like the fascist movement in Spain, it, and they're doing the uh, the salutes, right? The, the 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 raised arm, the Roman salute. Yeah. Even and, though, but by the way, it's, it's it wasn't a Roman salute. It was something that they claimed was a Roman salute. Yeah, yeah. It's but to be fair, it, it was the, not. Anyway, the fascist salute. Anyway, yeah, I uh, basically. Um, and yeah, basically, police opened fired on members of the crowd who were doing this. So then, members of the crowd so yeah, specifically. So basically, these guys would pop their arm up, you know, like the yeah. What, what would you call it, like hiling or whatever? Right? Yeah, just, I, just, I, I just, just I just call it the the fascist salute, yeah, or the, fascist salute, or the nationalist and, salute, uh, or and then the the cops because they were, I guess, anti phalangists. Yeah, they were. They become somewhat politicized. They yes. specifically targeted these people, individuals in the crowd. So they didn't just like indiscriminately shoot in the crowd. From what I understand, like they just they were like, oh, shoot, that, shoot. That yeah, guy. I mean, obviously people were hit in the crossfire, but yeah, and then people in the crowd pulled out guns, started shooting back at the police. Like this was in some ways the opening shots. This happened yeah. sort of right before the coup. Yeah, and this was not the first time this happened at a funeral. Like phalangists and various on the other side various like communists uh, anarchists uh, socialists would attack each other's like funerals like the, and sounds like, like the troubles on birth- steroids it, it it was very much like yeah. it was it was uh, yeah similar so to the troubles birthdays and funerals it any happened. public event like you could be having a wedding and like yeah. somebody there were guy communists who had sat outside churches and would tell like girls like catholic women coming out that of all the horrible things they were going to do to them once they were in power like it was there was a complete black uh, breakdown of like civility and like just normalcy mm-hmm. everyone hated each other everyone wanted to kill each other right um you mentioned the the phalangist faction which was the fascists yes i guess in the in very much in the italian tradition not 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 very similar to the nazis or uh so define that difference because they 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 do uh play a pretty prominent role yes and again we like we have to just contextualize this because the the average person doesn't know what a phalangist is i don't know what a phalangist is okay so phalangism was a specifically spanish uh ideology of fascism that was created by a guy named Jose Antonio Primavera, who was actually, he was an aristocrat, and he was the son of, uh, actually, the dictator of Spain who ruled it in the 20s. The dictator got, I think he died of natural causes, right before they sort of overthrew the monarchy and put in the Mm -hmm. Second Spanish Republic. But, yeah, and he created this, and interestingly for an aristocrat, phalangism is fairly left-wing on economics. It was very much about... um, sort of yeah basically like it, it was almost like sort of kind of i guess nazbol you would say like it had very national bolshevik yes for people who don't know what that acronym means um mm. very like left-wing economics uh 
class warfare, much like sort of fascism in Italy, kind of about the new man and sort of opposition to the right. old aristocratic order, like sort of viewed conservatism as past the pale. This is a thing sort of in all fascist movements. Fascism was n- not just a purely reactionary movement. Mm. It, 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 it was kind of an alternative to, I guess, liberalism and communism after sort of World War One. I, I, I would so, say... It was, a, it was an extreme hybrid of a lot of different ideologies. Yes, yeah. Right, and mindsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's a reason many of its uh, adherents called it the third position or okay, something. Okay. But yeah, ba- and basically phalangism is like that. It, it didn't really care about race. Actually, phalangists were the only fascist party that allowed gypsies into their movement. And okay. actually, during the Spanish Civil War, phalangists actively recruited out of prisoners of war from the other side. Right. Yeah, they were they were very much concerned. They were nationalistic, and they did have like socially conservative beliefs. But they were very much concerned with class. But they they hated communism. They hated the right. the anarchists. They and they often would fight them in the streets. There were also the requetes. Yes, these are requetes. Am I pronouncing that? Okay, requetes. Neither, neither of us speak Spanish, yeah. but requetes is generally how. Um, these people actually have a different uh, sort of genesis. You would say. In Spain, there was something called the Carlist Wars during the, the 1800s. And this was basically... The, but after, after the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, so after the Napoleonic Wars. So it's like 1820 Wars. to 1860 period. And they were yeah. basically a series of contests between mm-hmm. the Bourbons. The Spanish Bourbons are basically like the... For, they're sort of equivalent of the, the Stuarts. Sort of this deposed, like, sort of conservative Catholic... Uh, monarchy related to like Louis the Sixteenth, related to Louis the Sixteenth and, and the royal French, family. related to the French royal family, yeah. who were replaced by another monarchy that was more amenable to the quote unquote at the time liberal government. And there were a number of wars by these sort of conservative. They called themselves Carlists, uh, and they formed in basically this in the Spanish Civil War. The Republicans were very anti-clerical. They they massacred a lot of... They, even before the war started, there were all these burnings of churches, vandalisms of statues of Jesus and Mary and the saints. Yeah, where have we heard that before? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. We, we've seen that a lot of hey, times. Again, hence why this war is kind of coming back into the public... Public consciousness. Consciousness yeah. again, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, and once the war started, a lot of priests and nuns were massacred by mainly anarchist uh, militias. And in response to this, the the Carlists, these requets, requets is sort of what they were called as soldiers, but like the term was Carlists. There were also the Alphonsists who also fought as requests. They're the same as the Carlists, just they back a different monarchical line. Okay. Yeah, if that makes sense. So they didn't back the... Bourbons, no. They... Bourbons. They, um... The much in the same way how in in France you had the legitimists and the uh, the, the Bonapartists and the Orleanists. Oh right. Yeah. yeah they, this is the Spanish version okay. of that. But the Requets were all very devoutly monarchist, very devoutly Catholic, and viewed this war as basically like a holy Catholic crusade against atheist leftism, and they were they viewed it in very religious terms, as did many on the nationalist side. And as you mentioned, there's also Moors. As the, well, in the book, they're yes. referred to as Moors, but they're, they're Moroccans. They're Moroccans. They're Moroccans. Yeah, there yeah. is... Uh, the, yeah, and that's, the Army of Africa. The Army of... Yeah, the three main sort of, 
I guess, points of the nationalist trident are the 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 Requets, the Carla, the, the monarchist Catholic militia, the Phalangist militia, and in the middle it's the Army of Africa, the Spanish uh, regular and colonial troops, who spearheaded by the elite Spanish Foreign Legion, which were hardened colonial troops, and they brought many of the Moroccans back with them to right. help fight. They were slightly different from the French Foreign Legion. They were Very different. Yeah. They're, uh, well, they're modeled in the, the same traditions. They're modeled, but unlike, like, the French Foreign Legion is basically... Foreigners. Foreigners. The Spanish yeah. Foreign Legion is mostly Spanish. Correct. Yeah. It is the only unit that does recruit foreigners. Mm-hmm. It is still, it's still in existence to this day. Yeah, it's still the, it's still the pride of the Spanish army. Yes. But it was predominantly officered and manned by Spaniards, native Spaniards, not foreigners like the French Foreign Legion, which was, which is all, yeah, basically all, all foreigner, all foreigners, foreigners except the for their officers. Yeah. Right. Um, so we have these factions on, on the nationalist side and again, they're, they're right leaning on the Republican side. You have a lot of different yes. colors. Yeah. On the Republicans, you have, um, the old professional army. There's one. the old professional army. Now much in of Mid- them in Madrid. Yeah, in Madrid. Now Madrid, much yeah, of them yeah. defect over the course but, of the yeah. war. But at the start, they, the the like yes. the official army is, is in Madrid. The the command staff. Well, they're just kind of there. Yeah. And they they don't they're not exactly super stoked about the ideals of their new republic. But yes. they're they just happen to be there. You also have I've mentioned police. There was the. There was the Civil Guard, which actually was kind of split between Nationalist and uh, Republican in their uh, sort of ma- in their ideals at the beginning of the war and fought on both sides. Mm-hmm. There was also the Assault Guards, which were created primarily co- by the Popular Front government because they thought the Civil Guards were too right-wing. Now, they were also split, but more of them fought on the Republican side. But much of what eventually made up the majority of the republican forces were basically communist socialist um anarchist and trade union militias and actually if many of you have probably seen a certain flag that's associated with uh organizations like antifa and other which is which is like the the black flag the black black and red flag sort of divided at the that's actually from the uh, spanish civil war that's the cnt which was the big uh, anarcho-syndicalist, and don't ask me what that means. I've I've tried to explain that ideology. It's very hard. Leftist ideological mush. We could yes. It. Yeah. In the same way that the kind of the phalanges were also rightist ideological. Yes. Mush, yeah. to, to an extent, yeah. like it's just this is a war where there was a lot of ideological mush. Yeah. Colliding. Yes, but yeah, that's the the black and red yeah. flag is from. The Spanish right. War, it's the CNT flag, and the anarcho-syndicalist trade union. There was also uh, one final thing to mention on the uh, Republican side. Lots of Basque and Catalonian separatists who viewed... We still and, exist to this Which day. still exist. And interestingly, the Basques, many of them were devoutly Catholic and didn't like many of the ideals that the Republic stood for, but they viewed it as their great shot at its independence. And a lot of Basques also to be fair, also fought for the Carlist Requets on the nationalist side. It, it, it was, it's, there's a quote I read in some, not this book, but in some book on the Spanish Civil War that says, it's a, a sad for the Basque nation that this was a civil war for them as well as for Spain as a whole. Right. 
So a total shit show this war. Yes, this is yeah. I, I remember. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's the course of war basically. Yeah, uh, you have all these ideological factions that really, if you put them together, if you're just to say the nationalist forces, it's like an ideological mush of <laughs> mosh pit of right wing, various different right wing groups that don't necessarily like each other. And then you have various left-wing groups that don't necessarily like, like each other, and they're all kind of going nuts. Yes. Shooting each other at funerals and weddings at first. Yeah. And then, and then straight up urban fighting, maneuver warfare, all the hallmarks that would become hallmarks of the Second World War. But also, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of the old antiquated trench warfare of the first. Yes. So it's a bit of a hybrid. It's a very... It is the in-between war. Absolutely. It is the biggest, and it is arguably the, biggest with the possible story. exception of the Russian Civil War, yeah. uh, which kind of started during, while well, the First World War was ending. It is definitely the biggest war between the wars. For sure. Mm-hmm. Interwar period. Yeah. So, again, a bit of a shit show. And just kind of as, as a, as a, how do you say the word? Anecdote. 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 Okay. <clears throat> This is a bit of an a- anecdote. When I visited Spain, which is many, many years ago, I remember going to Malaga, where there was a site. There was a there was significant fighting, as far as I'm aware, in Malaga. Um, at one point, a bunch of Republican prisoners were executed because there was there. On both sides, there were a lot of atrocities in this war. Because again, Absolutely. As, as as you mentioned, they really, they all really, really hate each other. There, there is, so, yeah, there, there are lots of. You can't avoid it. There, there I've heard choices. a lot of people make defenses like, "Oh, our side did less, so our our side did." Less. Yeah, but in reality, it's just like it, it doesn't. It, wherever one side took power, people on the other side died. Yes, that's that's yeah. It generally, not and after the fighting was done as well. Right. So, so yeah. anyways, in Malaga, when I was there many years ago, I was at a p- area where apparently Republican prisoner of prisoner of war group company or whatever was executed. They were machine gunned or something or grenaded. You know, nasty business. And I remember the tour guide going like, um, "Yeah, like this is this is where a bunch of Republicans died." And there are these people from the U.S. who are clearly like, they're clearly like from the South. I think they were from, they must have, I think they were from Virginia. I was talking, so they're from Virginia and Georgia. But they were like huge, I think Bush was president, this is years ago. Bush was still president. And they were just like, God dang, they kill Republicans here, I can't believe that. And they, they were like, and then I, I read later, I, I, was, I was trying to find the spot, but it was like the guys they executed were Antifa. Like, it was, it was, it was weird, though, because, yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's just the, that's why this war is kind of confusing. They're fighting Republicans. But I remember, they're like, dang, they kill Republicans, that's terrible. And it's like, oh, I don't think you understand. <laughs> Republican generally, like, is like sort of a left-wing term. It's only yeah. in, like, America that it's, yeah, like, it's the conservatives are America's, called Republicans. America's actually backwards line. It's yes, all, it's America's all, backwards anyways. line. Well, it's like in Australia, the, yeah. the Conservative Party are the liberals. Yeah, the Conservative yeah. Party are the liberals. It's it's, And the liberal party is conservative, right? Yeah. Actually, in Russia, the far right party is the Liberal Democrats. Like it's yeah. <laughs> America's the one that's wrong. Yeah, 
Are you a are you a conservative? Well, you're a liberal. <laughs> yeah. Ben Shapiro's head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> this is the war we're dealing with. It's a shit show. It's yes. a, it's a total shit show. Mm. And Peter Kemp is a 22 year old student at Cambridge, and he's kind of watching this shit show happen. Mm-hmm. It's been happening, I think, for about a year at this point, and he's just finishing up at Cambridge mm-hmm. University he, to and become a lawyer, actually. Yeah, but he has had military training as well. A little bit, yeah. So yes. he's in the equivalent of like an ROTC program. He misses the First World War, obviously, because he's too young, mm-hmm. right? But he's still, while he's in Cambridge, he is studying law, and he's also, like, as a, as a kind of a weekend thing, he'd be doing military drills and stuff mm-hmm. with the local reserve officer training program at um, Cambridge, which was a scheme that had been established before the war to basically give guys an opportunity if they wanted to pursue a military career after they had finished their degrees, well, they they could, right? They have some context, they've gotten some experience and they can go straight to like a regiment and be ready to go with their degree in hand with their commission and with a few years of experience not just coming you know not just being a totally green officer so it produced some pretty uh pretty good officers but at the same time it certainly wasn't like special forces green beret selection or anything like that it was it was kind of like you almost want to call it like another university club it wasn't even the equivalent of like today's rotc it was more of like a almost like a gentleman's club where you like sometimes shot guns and it was similar to the old sort of victorian where like yeah every random gentleman had like an officer's commission and some military training yeah it wasn't really like a Again, they he is living and being trained under the shadow of the last war, which was the Great War, World War One, and his a lot of his instructors and a lot of his family friends and a lot of his uncles and stuff had served in the war. His brother was in the Royal Navy at this point. I'm not sure if he serves in the war. Can you do? You, do you know if he elaborates on his brother? But uh, maybe not. His I don't, I don't older, recall though. that. Yeah, his yeah. brother is older, and is he's in the Royal Navy and stuff. So, but that being said, like he he does live under the shadow of World War One, which just happened, and he he kind of wants to not be stuck in an office after Cambridge, because from by all accounts, like he's a little bit he's a little bit headstrong. He's got a bit of a headstrong personality, mm-hmm. which clashes with. A lot of heads at, at Cambridge, which is in many ways at this point, and it's still very Edwardian England, uh, a very old boys club, and he's a bit of a rebel, he's a bit boisterous, he's very, very politically conservative to the point where I think he gets kicked out of the conservative club because they tell him he's too conservative. But that being said, he's not a, he's not a big fan of authoritarianism either. He's not a big fan of dishonesty. And he sees a lot of this propaganda coming out of this war um, as being very subversive, communist, and in the words in the era, red, right? Yeah. Red, red propaganda. And that's how he viewed it. So he decides, because he didn't have a great time at Cambridge, he doesn't really want to join the British Army because there's nothing going on. Um, he doesn't really want to practice law because he just sat in school for many years and he... 
I think he does mention at the start, like, he has pretty crappy grades. He's not... Yeah. He's not exactly Cambridge material. No, th- this man was born to be an adventurer. That's yeah, what he became. so he yeah. was like, okay, I'm... I'm out of here. So he kind of tells everybody, hey, I'm going to go to Spain and fight with the side that um, no one's fighting which, with, which is the nationalists. Because at this point, the... The propaganda was very, very heavily focused on the Republican cause and recruiting generally working class men to join the Republican cause. I just want to jump in here because there's uh, something during the um, during the Spanish Civil War, especially during the first few years of it. There was a concerted effort made by the actually the Soviet Union to attract uh, working-class men all over the world and basically created an... Or- the Soviets basically created an organization to funnel young left-wing men or men who were involved with trade unionism into Spain to mm-hmm. serve into what were called the International Brigades. Uh, Canada, we have our own version of this, the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. The Americans um, had their Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Yeah. Uh, the, the British had the British... Just the British Brigade, I think. I, I don't know the name of it. The Italians had the... Uh, Ju- Italians were basically refugees from Mussolini's in the Giuseppe Garbadelli Battalion. Garibaldi. Garibaldi, right? Uh, is it Garibaldi or Garibaldi? I don't know. He's Sicilian, okay, whatever. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> They're all the same. Yeah. All the same. Bloody Italians. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and... Yeah, so there's actually a lot of foreigners fighting in this war. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of people who've been basically sent into Spain by this international network to uh, help out the Republicans, but there's also a fair number of national uh, volunteers on the nationalist side, less so in numbers, but there's actually a surprising m- number. And a book I got to plug right now is um, there's a book called Franco's International Brigades by uh, by a guy named Christopher Othen. Uh, who, who also has a book on Katanga that I need to read, but um, and he talks about all the, basically all these adventurers and uh, or fascists or uh, people of various right wing dispositions who found their way to Spain and uh, some of them very like unusual characters. Like there was a random East Indian fellow who was just found himself in Spain and joined the Falange in 1936, and at the end of the war converted to Catholicism and just. Lived in Spain for the rest of his life. They're Filipinos. They were Filipinos. There were black guys from Guinea uh, in, on the nationalist side. There were guys from Finland and Greece and Poland and all, all over the place. White Germany. Ger- yeah. There were there Germany was... outside of the official state support. There yes. were like German volunteers. There were German volunteers. Yes, Germany and fascist Italy sent a lot of support to Franco. Official support, yeah. Yes, Bo- both official and unofficial. Yes. And the Soviet Union and, interestingly enough, Mexico did the same for the Republicans. Republicans. Yeah. And tacitly the French get, gave... Tacitly the French did gave some report yeah, to, uh, support to the Republicans. A lot of the international brigades you mentioned were trained in southern France. Yes. Right. Yeah. So... In the early years of the war, the Republic, outside of the Army of Africa and um, outside of, I guess, what was that What was that general's name? The um, other general. Mola. Okay. Outside of Franco's Army of Africa and Mola's elements of the, 
I guess, the fractured professional army. He also, Mola commanded a lot of the, the requests as well. Okay. He was like their official right. commander. Sorry, but out, outside of the trained professional soldiers pre-war, the requet militias and the flange militias were not all that good. No. Um, they were very brave dudes, but... Yeah, the, um, requet, the requets were a lot like Japanese... Uh, Basically, in imperial infantry, like literally, like suicidal charges, and they were zealots. Basically, at the end of the religious day, religious zealots. Religious zealots. That, that's I'm not I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. It's they believed in their cause enough that they would march into machine gun fire, singing hymns, and their priests would like cross artillery barrages yeah. to give last rites. Like they took their faith seriously, and it was a warrior faith for them. Like, when they called this... And with very little training, too, mind you. Yes. They were a crusading army, I guess, in the truest sense of the word. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now, on the other side, you have, and I'm going to read from the book here, uh, the Republican paramilitary organizations were provided by the various workers' unions. Of these, the principals were the anarchist FAI, the anarcho-syndicalist CNT, and the Trotskyist POUM. After the Movimento, one of the first actions of the Madrid government was to throw open the state arsenals and distribute arms to these popular militias. Less wisely, they opened the prisons. These, as Senor de Madariaga points out, had been emptied months earlier their political prisoners by an amnesty of President Azana, and so could disgorge only common criminals. The latter were immediately enrolled in the various militias, and were responsible for many of the violence and horror that disgraced Republican Spain in the early months of the war. So, emptying prisons and recruiting them. Mm-hmm. Now, did that happen on the national side for your way? No, but there would have been... Um, there definitely would have been some of these prisoners recruited into the nationalist side after being captured. Right. Because, as I mentioned, the Falange and other elements of the nationalist forces did... Uh, recruit a lot of I mean, basically i guess the equivalent for our listeners uh watch me have a rhodesian podcast they'd be the tame tears gotcha yeah gotcha okay the bit of color coordination obviously the anarchists and anarcho-syndicalists right yes and, the, and all the other republican forces were either in a pre-war uniform khaki you know helmet so like khaki battle dress and a helmet, or they would be in like civilian clothes, basically. Yes. Uh, on the by next- the end of the war, most of basically the Republican forces are in civilian clothes because they're right. By the end of the war, yeah, they're the basically all militia. Gone. The provisional yeah. army's gone; it's dissolved. Yeah. Uh, and the on the national side, um, you can you you were able to and and Peter Camp discovers this pretty quickly because again he does go into the country and right away it's. it's it's a country of color. Yeah. Right? And I mean that in the sense that, like, the... You really, really... Like, it's almost like gang signs. <laughs> it's like Crips and Bloods. Because the, the requests are hardcore about wearing the Scarlet Berets. And yes. he mentions, like, um, one of the uh, rather suicidal assaults. He hears about, as he's, like, coming to Spain, through France, by the way. He, he basically takes a train through France and he just... They let him cross the border, yeah. even though he's like clearly gonna. He just says, "I'm where? Why are you going there? I'm gonna be a journalist, right?" That's yeah. an excuse. Which uh, is funny because Peter Camp later did become a journalist. That's right. That's, yeah, that's right. So 
they just let him into the country because it's nineteen like thirty six and <laughs> everything is falling apart. Who cares about enforcing the border? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, where have we heard that before? <laughs> anyways, You're not wrong. Anyways, um, so he, anyways, he just crosses the border into into a war zone, um, and. Uh, he, yeah, he sees right away the, the the scarlet red berets of the of the requests, right, which identifies them with their purple tassels. As a lot of them have gold tassels as well. Gold, okay, so gold and purple tassels, and they're they're running around, basically charging into the enemy. And he, again, he describes an early battle where the requests are slaughtered because they're you can see those scarlet berets from a million miles away. No helmets. Obviously, no body armor in this era. Crappy Mauser 93 carbines, which suck. The worst, you know, hand-to-hand weapons ever made. Like, terrible quality swords. He mentions that in the book, too. Yeah. Their weaponry sucks. None of it is indigenously produced. It all just... Except except for the swords. Except for the swords, which suck. Everything else is, like, licensed by Mauser or, like, a foreign import of some sort. All of the armored vehicles are foreign imports. Spain does not have industry for war. It does not, sorry, it does not have the industry for war. And they have to bring it from elsewhere. And whatever they do make it sucks, including their, their uniforms for the, for the requests. Um, and this is, this is an issue on both sides, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Like, their, their kit was not good during this war. Yeah. So... The only they, guys who had arguably good kit were the... Right. Again, Army of Africa, but they were they were the only force here that was right. like trained and equipped, ready for war. So, so I, I mentioned the requests. What did the Army of Africa look like? The Army of Africa, well, generally both the requests and the Army of Africa would wear like green, almost like a greenish khaki uniform. Right. And the the Army of Africa soldiers would wear. I'm not sure what the Spanish name from them is, but there's the, like, a specific cap. cap. Yeah, they're a right. wedge cap. With a tassel on it, right? Yeah, not a beret. Wear, yeah, and they still wear, still wear it. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, many, much of the legion sort of took pride in kind of being a bit unkempt, like they had tattoos and That's stuff, right. and they they'd wear their they'd grow out their facial hair and they'd let their their shirts would be unbuttoned, like they kind of had this sort of almost adventurer kind of look to them, sort of mercenary look to them, even though they weren't anything but mercenaries. Right. There's um, a there's a the Spanish wait, machismo. Machismo, yes. Right. A lot of that. Yeah. And the phalanges, for those who are wondering, wore um, basically blue, blue uniform. They were called blue shirts, much like right. the, the black shirts in Italy. Right. And, yeah. The fascists got to have some sort of color. The, yeah. It's it, all it's blue shirts, brown shirts, and, black shirts, silver shirts. Like, yeah. On, yeah. on that note, there was an Irish brigade on the national side. Yeah, who are also called the they're Blue all, Shirts. They're also called the Blue Shirts. Yeah. Under they, General Aon O'Duffy, who is one of, one of the heroes of the Irish, uh, right? The Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War. And then a total moron in Spain. Yeah, they did really badly in Spain. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, uh, the Irish have a long history of mercenary service dating back to well, the fourteenth, fifteenth century, right? Absolutely. A very long time. The wild geese, as the Irish and Scots mercenaries were tended to be known, the Celtic mercenaries from the mm-hmm. British Isles, were well known for their fighting prowess and fought very effectively through the Anglo-Irish War when they won their independence from the United Kingdom. 
as you mentioned, O'Duffy is a hero of this respective war, and then he decides to become a fascist, basically. Yeah, well, he was... The thing is... Uh, this is kind of going a little bit off topic, but basically, Ann O'Duffy was someone who's like like many ex-IRA commanders sought political power in the 20s and 30s right and Anna Duffy being someone who is fairly conservative and um a bit of an egomaniac bit of an egomaniac certainly a militarist yeah uh created something called the original the old comrades association which later so which started out as like a military veterans group and then Similar to parallels in other countries, where right, happened to right. a lot of German returning Fre- troops as Freikor well. Freikorps and stuff, yeah. Yeah, basically morphed into a, a paramilitary fascist organization yeah. called the the Blue Shirts. A- actually, though, he founded though Fian Gale, which m- lately moderated itself into just a normal conservative party, and is actually one of the biggest parties in Ireland. That's right, right yeah. They still yeah. exist. Yeah, he was kind of a a political frenemy of Eamon de Valera. Right. Yeah, but anyway, he thought basically, I go to Spain because even uh, the Irish really supported the Spanish nationalists for religious reasons. Um, both Catholic, right? Yep, yeah, both Catholic. Even the even the left wing Irish supported uh, Franco. Um, and yeah, he said, "I'll go to Spain. I'll win glory, and then I can use that glory to kind of like take over the government back home." Yeah, was, that did not a, go his it way. Was, uh, it was a pretty big brigade, six seven hundred guys. Right. Yep. Which is not a, especially for Ireland, if he was to bring that back as a battle-hardened combat. Yes. Unit. Especially um, when he could definitely count on probably a few thousand other su- supporters. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, if he won glory. Now, when he showed up, and this is again when this is all happening as Kemp arrives, <laughs> this unit has not performed well because the guys he makes officers and NCOs in this this wild geese unit of his, his own Irish brigade. Do not have military experience. Yes. Now that worked in Ireland. They didn't necessarily need guys with military experience to fight the British. Yeah. But in a in this also, it should be remembered that sorry, when, so the IRA was actually right about to collapse true, before yeah. the treaty was signed. That's actually. right. The IRA actually did not do very well, and he thought because they won the war, we did so great. And he yeah. tried to apply the same tactics where he's like, "I'm going to appoint my lackeys and like basically like." political commissars in a way yeah i want to be very soviet about this and appoint the lackeys that'll that'll toe the line and and inspire the men to greater deeds didn't quite work in what was now like modern warfare like the warfare we saw the maneuver warfare of the second world war did not work um guys without the experience and the decisiveness and the violence of action to act did not lead men very effectively and this unit was basically was it accused of like, like looting and stuff? Was it, was it, what, what were the? Because it, it had discipline issues. was bad, yeah. and there's there's a there's a story that sorry was alcoholism big, that was the yeah issue. there's a story yeah. when the whiskey ran out the Irish just started fighting not like shooting each other but just fist fights broke out yeah someone shot a horse someone punched the chaplain like it was discipline was not good in this in this unit and it, it and they were invited initially yes they were invited and they did have a um when the nationalists finally won i believe the irish brigade was given a, a place in the parade yes but they're kicked out first they're kicked out of the country. yeah they, they'd been kicked out of the country they're welcome yeah. back for purely ceremonial reasons yes but like at that stage of the war they're getting kicked out, and they're like one of the very few big formations of foreigners 
in on the national side. Yes. Right? They're being kicked out, and um, there's also Germans at this point with the Condor Legion, which is a, like an air, air formation. There's mm-hmm. German tankers as well. Yep. Um, the Italians the, the have Italians, a number of regiments there. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, so Peter Kemp runs in all these units as he's trying to find his way to somebody that'll take him. And um, he finally, because of the fact he's not a fascist and he actually finds himself disagreeing with a lot of the rhetoric of the Flanders, especially when he when he arrives in Spain, because you see he goes through all these towns that have, where fighting has happened and he literally sees the propaganda on the wall where they... Everybody espouses their 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 real views through the propaganda, right? Not just like, or sorry, through the through the graffiti, not just like the propaganda papers and what like this is like what this you know what different soldiers that have occupied this town have thought, and right on the wall, and he finds the flanges a little bit too authoritarian for his liking. Even mm-hmm. as a very conservative person, he's no admirer of Hitler, he's mm-hmm. no admirer of fascism. No. Um, not not a fan of Mussolini. Not a yeah, Mussolini doesn't come up much, but no, he's not a. He, he yeah. fights them afterwards too. Yes, so he he fights yeah. in the Second World War against yeah. the Nazis. Should be. So he's he's looking at this like yeah, I'm not a big fan of this. So he j- decides to join the Requests. Now he's not a Catholic. No, <laughs> the Requests are devotedly Catholic and uh, and a little suicidal, but he's like ah, oh, it's you know. I want my adventure, and he's he's given the option. Basically, despite knowing very little Spanish, the the requests are very impressed with the fact that he had had some training at Cambridge, right? And in fact, he was like one of the very few foreigners because again, the Irish got kicked out. He's one of the very few foreigners that's there that's English speaking that could maybe you know tip the scales in their favor. There are around like maybe fifty. Brits and like I think 20 yep. Americans on the national side. I don't know actually if there were any Canadians on the national. There certainly were on the Republican side. Yeah. But. Thousands of foreigners on the Republican side and like maybe a few hundred. Well, there actually there are quite a few uh foreigners on the national side, but most of them are Moroccans. Yeah, that's I don't I wouldn't even count those. Those are like colonial troops. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. I mean like straight mo- mo- foreign volunteers. Yes, yes but a lot of them there are a lot of Portuguese, German and Italians. Right. And there is sort of a few thousand hodgepodge of everyone else. Right. right. Including a, there's a fair yeah. bit of actually right-wing French uh and, volunteers and yeah, a fair yeah. number of white Russians actually right. too. So in that Wrangles hodgepodge Bruce. is uh in that in that hodgepodge is Kemp. Yes. He it, because they like him so much, they kind of give him the option. Like, do you want to be in the cavalry or the infantry? Kemp just got out of university studying history and law and stuff, so he's like, yeah, I've... cavalry's got the prestige. I'll be a cavalryman. Well, we'll see. And he's temporarily assigned to a cavalry unit. Um, pretty quickly, he's made a NCO. He's made a sergeant. Again, just because he has background as a as an officer in training he never gets a british he well he does get a british army commission eventually right oh absolutely yes but but at this stage he does he doesn't have a commission yet he's just some guy mm-hmm. so they're like yeah we'll make you a sergeant and um he 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 does ride out on a few patrols with the with the cavalry at this point with a really really crappy mauser carbine he describes it as like the worst rifle he's ever used and also like the worst saber indigenously produced in spain that he's ever had he's given a cavalry saber um and when he rides 
he remembers he has he has no real issues riding, but having the carbine slung over his back, it just like it just digs into his back. It's super uncomfortable. The gear's not good. The uniform's like uncomfortably hot, weird. He's got this stupid scarlet beret that everyone can see him from a mile away, and um, he's just like this is this is kind of stupid. But while on a patrol, uh, in support of an infantry element of the Requets, he hears it's like his first action, so to speak. Right? There's a few times where he's like you know he's strafed by aircraft and stuff, but they're they're very like he says those are very minor events. Like his first real big like oh shit moment, here we go, right? His first baptism of fire is he's called out. He's like, this Requet infantry unit is being attacked. Um, we need potential cavalry support. We might need you guys to ride out. As you mentioned in the early excerpt of or the, first, the excerpt that you read at the start of this podcast, this war is, despite it being somewhat mechanized, like there's Panzer 1s uh, from Germany, there's there's uh, the T-26 tank from the Soviet Union, they are operating there, but by and large, the war is being fought in the backs of horses and mules. I mentioned mules getting killed and stuff. Like It's, it's, not, a, it's not quite that mechanized, because Spain is a little bit behind yes. technologically at this point. So the cavalry was uh, somewhat important during this war as part of the maneuver warfare thing, and he was like, "Okay, this is like our our moment to shine," and they're they're basically riding through like I think it's like an olive grove, right? Or it's it's a farm. It's kind of hard to see what's going on, and they're riding through these. You know, they're they're like now in this. They ride into this like wooded area, and then they see movement. And they know the enemy's operating. The Republicans are operating in the area. There's militias that have very recently committed a lot of atrocities, namely killing priests, killing nuns. They love to crucify priests as, like, an ultimate irony, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the precursors to Antifa, what do you fucking expect? Yeah. But they they, they do, they, they commit all these atrocities, and he knows about this, and he has very strong feelings about that. So he's just like, it's our time. And in his mind, he, he describes in the book, he's thinking like, Attila the Hun, the Light Brigade, you know, the Scots Greys at Waterloo, you know? he's probably, If he read Tolkien, he's probably thinking the Ride of the Rohirrim. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is his moment. He draws his sword, and he's like, oh, shit, is this really happening? And it's 1936, mind you, and yeah. in the First World War, there wasn't that much British cavalry. There were a few actions, obviously, notable ones, Beersheba, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, what was the other one that... Uh, shit uh, flower deuce charge right yeah. there, there's a few notable ones but like cavalry's basically dead in 1936 and he's like holy shit like it's, this is it and he is a student of history so he knows this is cool and he's like this is gonna be awesome i'm gonna i'm gonna charge in the enemy and they see the movement the movement starts getting like really erratic and they're like there's some going on in the road we can hear them it's like a it's like a company or a battalion so they charge they they sound a charge and he's like holy shit. and his blood's pumping um, they started to trot and they go full gallop. He thinks it's charge of the light brigade. And to his, sh- as he's holding out his sword, what happens is his, his Mauser carbine, like, at, cause it's slung over his, his chest, like starts like flailing everywhere. <laughs> he starts losing control of it. It whacks him in the elbow that he's holding his saber and it, like locks his elbow. So he can't even like swing his sword properly. He's like, Oh shit. And he's, like, all fucked because his arm's, like, hurting. His elbow's fucked. He didn't break it or anything. He just, like, 
it just it the the Charlie horsed him. Basically. He Charlie he Charlie horsed himself, right? And it also from what he said, it was the, it was the butt end of his carbine, so it really must have like swung around, right? He remembers like he got cracked, and his arm was just like locked, locked out. He was just like shit, and finally he sees the enemy. It's a herd of goats. And three very frightened shepherds. <laughs> really frightened and confused ah! shepherds. <laughs> and he's there with his locked ass arm. He can't even... Even if he needed to fight, he wouldn't have been able to. But he was just like... And his horse is freaking out now because there's goats everywhere. And he's like, he's like run over a few goats. And the farmers and these shepherds are like yelling at him. And he's super confused. And his unit's super confused. And he said that was his first and last cavalry charge of the war. Very anticlimactic. It, 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 I think it's like a very, it's almost like a, um, what's what's the word like a allegory to the death of cavalry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, really, I think that was the last true cavalry action in, in military history. It was that the, the last trampling action. of the goats by the Carlist cavalry in the yeah, Spanish. Civil yeah, exactly. War. So it didn't go over well, and uh, eventually, like he gets official orders, like, hey, we're gonna put you in with the infantry. Mm-hmm. And right away, he he's sent to some pretty gnarly urban fighting. Now we're not gonna go through every individual battle and campaign in the book. Unfortunately, you know, one of my gripes with this book is it's so condensed, right? Yes, it's it's yeah. a bit shorter than it probably should be. Yeah, we're kind of we're almost like we're already an hour in, and really like this is just a you almost need to listen to this podcast before you read the book because there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. But um, he gets right in the thick of it with a bunch of urban fighting. Uh, he describes dealing with what sounds like Stalingrad. He's moving through tunnels and stuff, dealing with snipers. And uh, at the same time, they're doing these like almost trench assaults and raids on open ground with trenches. And then they're doing, you know, they're fighting in cities. So, and there's also air power and there's armored vehicles. So there's like, Weird mix of like yeah. World War One and World War Two style combat, exactly. And um, and uh, you know, as he's fighting, he's hearing constantly of Republican atrocities. Now he doesn't witness any nationalist atrocities until much, much later. And we're gonna we're gonna skip ahead quite a bit here. Um, so after some pretty distinguished service in the Requet Infantry. He kind of wants a change. He goes back to England a few times on leave. Surprisingly, mm. he's actually allowed back into France. Yeah, he, he's given a quite a lot of leeway. By the, the, yeah, the regrets the, treat him very well. He's always yes. like well fed and stuff and treated very because again, there's just not that many foreign volunteers and they're very yeah. happy to have him because yeah. they're kind of ragtag. Yeah. So they let him go on leave. He goes to England. Actually, his his dad dies in the middle of all this. He gets a letter from his aunt saying your your dad's gonna pass away from some sort of um just some long-term illness Mm -hmm. so he returns back and he just misses the funeral by 24 hours so he stays for a few weeks with his mother he goes back to the requests and fights with them the whole time everybody in england is mailing him letters and saying like hey uh got a uh got a job for you if you'd like to come back home as a as a (laughs) you know as a as a subtle kind of like dude like you shouldn't be going off. You, you, like, you could die and ruin your reputation and all this stuff. Like, you should come home. But I'm having so much fun. <laughs> Just... His real reason was, like, 
yeah. he wanted to stick it through. Right? Yes. He just he had he had loyalty to these guys that he had been fighting with. Also, Kemp yeah. reminds me so, a little yeah. bit about of Younger. He's kind of yeah. one of these guys. Like he's not inured to the horrors of war, but I don't know. I get the vibe. Like when I'm reading the other, like this guy's kind of no, one no. of these guys who thrives in a wartime. Situation. I almost get him as more of a Willard bird. He's just in it. He's just in it, and he has to read be- the other book. This guy keeps like though throughout like the whole trilogy, he keeps like volunteering for shit okay. that sane people wouldn't. Like, I think this guy is kind of one of those I'll, I'll, I'll natural reserve, Maybe adventures. I'll reserve judgment on Kemp until I, yeah. I read the other two books. But I, I had arrives in Spain, though, because he's so young. He's just like, I I volunteered for this. I'm going to stick it through. Okay. I, I get a completely different vibe, but okay. that's, that's just me. You'll have to read the book for yourself to, uh, to know. We do recommend it. Yeah. Anyways, um, he... He kind of wants to change after a while because, again, the Briquettes are very ragtag. And they do some very courageous stuff. They have some excellent leadership and very, very crazy chaplains that follow <laughs> them in the battle and are completely psychotic. Yeah. Um, read the book to find out more. <laughs> uh, but it, he 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 excels there, and they treat him very well. And he's just like, I, you know, this... I want to see a different side of the war because he keeps hearing as he fights in these different skirmishes and I, I guess you could call them small battles really they're not they're not quite giant maneuvers they're just small skirmishes almost to a lower level than what he experiences later on he's like I want to see what the legion's doing because I'm hearing that the Spanish legion under Francisco Franco is carrying their weight as far as this war goes and he wants to check out what the heck they're doing. And he, he runs into Spanish Legion soldiers every now and again. And they are, you know, they are the shit. They're they're good. They're good dudes. And he wants to kind of get involved. They're kind of the Sela scouts in this war. <laughs> yeah, basically. So he's yeah. like, I, I want in. And he decides to volunteer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he joins the uh, he joins the Sp- Spanish uh, Foreign Legion, and he he runs into some difficulty uh, getting in there. He it's not like the Carlists where he's welcomed in with open arms. He has to he has to earn his keep here. In fact, one of the first things his commanding officer tells him is, "I shit on Englishmen." <laughs> That's like the only thing he can say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he, so he he's actually told he has to enlist as a private. Now he's like I think he's like a cap he's the equivalent of like maybe like a first lieutenant or a captain or whatever. Yeah, he's is quite a prestigious position in the requests. Not all Yeah, he's like well known and among the requests they know who he is cuz he's like the one Englishman. Right? Like that's cool. But he's a he's a almost like a company commander, right? He leads his own bandera. Like he he's like a company commander. Mm-hmm. Right? He he rises all the way up to become a company commander, and they're like, all, they almost may want to make him like in charge of a battalion or something. Right? I don't know what the, I think a bandera is a company, right? Yeah. So, he's told actually when he first shows up, like, you gotta enlist as a private. Because the Legion is different. Like, we're actually professionals. And, um, he kind of finagles his way out of that, and he does get, he's made basically like a subaltern, like a very, very junior officer, and he's told, like, we're going to make you an orderly and you're going to kind of watch, watch and learn, right? And again, he meets his commanding officer. The first thing that he's told is, 
I shit on English, and that's the only thing the guy can say to him, because he doesn't speak Spanish. He knows a few words, he knows enough to call commands and lead men into combat, but he doesn't know Spanish. The other thing he doesn't know is machine guns, because the Requites have no machine guns at this point. He doesn't know a thing about machine gun theory. He didn't learn anything about machine guns back in Cambridge, for sure. There's no way he did, as a our, you know officer in training. So, he's like, shit like i know nothing about how they're they're conducting this war it's very different mm -hmm. right it's these pretty massive engagements compared to what their his request group was doing so kemp has to learn the ropes and it's not an easy process a lot of people are very skeptical of him but he kind of finds solace among all of the other foreign volunteers that yeah. have actually found their way into the Legion in the, in the same way he did. Yeah. As I said before, you know, I can't recommend the book Franco's International Brigades enough because it talks about, because a lot of, there's a lot of ink devoted to the, all the foreigners who fought on the Republican side, mm -hmm. not as much the Nashes, but there are some really interesting characters. Uh, and one of them, he meets a, a fellow named Hartman, who is, I believe, originally a Finn. And yeah, yeah, he is a Finn, and he served in the the German army in the First World War. That's right, cavalry. And then in the the short uh, the short Finnish Civil War that happened in nineteen nineteen, which similar to it, it has actually a lot of similarities to the Spanish Civil War. This it, it, communist versus anti communist, yeah, sort of right versus left war uh, with lots of atrocities committed on both sides. <laughs> Yep. Oh, early 20th century politics. It was a lovely time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Hartman is a bit of a mad lad. He's associated with the the uh, the short-lived phalangist revolt in Salamanca, where basically re rebellious elements of the phalange revolt against the rest of the phalange. Yep. And Franco has to send in troops to basically put down this small mutiny. Yep. And Mannerheim and Hadilla, I think, got both arrested in that because Mannerheim was kind of just the wrong. Sorry, not Mannerheim. Uh, Hartman. Hartman. Mannerheim's the other Finnish guy. Uh, at the wrong place at the right time. And there's a time where Hartman and Kemp are both wounded in a hospital, and the nurse keeps, who's a nun, keeps trying to give uh, Hartman coffee, and Hartman is literally telling her to fuck off. Get out of my go room. Away, get out of my room. I want to go, he wants to get back into the combat. He's like, I'm not wounded. And he's like, yeah. I think he had been shot in the leg or something. Yeah, like, he like, he was, like literally like, couldn't bad, walk. Yeah, but he, he was, was like, really badly wounded, but he was like, no, I'm fine. Send me back to the front. Yeah. And, and the nurse is just trying to, and the nun is just trying to give him coffee. Like, would you like coffee, Mr. Hartman? Senior Hartman? Yeah. He's like, fuck you. Yeah. And then one night... Kemp wakes up to like ten gunshots. He's like, "What?" The? He's in a hospital, right? Yeah. And he's like, "What?" The? And he, they're like far behind any of the fighting. They're, yeah. they're not like the, it's not a field hospital. They're, they're right? away from the front line. Yeah. They're very far away from the front line, and like the safest part of Spain. Yeah. And this is the wars. This is skipping ahead a little bit in the future. The, the war's almost over. Yeah. But he just hears like fucking gunshots. He's like, "Holy shit!" And he's you know he's he's been badly wounded at this point. Uh, so he can't get up, and he's just like, uh oh, oh, what is that? And then he hears this screaming, and he's just like, God damn it, Hartman. And he hears him, he hears Hartman say, You come in here again, I won't just shoot the light, I'll shoot you. <laughs> screaming at the nun. Yeah, and Hartman like, literally me. once time when woken up by hospital staff, shot out the lights, and then yelled, <laughs> Next time it'll be you. 
Yeah. And again, he's yelling at me with like this thick, like Finnish German accent. Like, at, a, at a poor Spanish nun. Who's at a poor like, Spanish nun who probably doesn't understand what he's saying and just. She had the patience of a saint, though. She sure. did. Yeah. This. These are the kind of people they have yeah. in the. Yeah. Actually, I gotta tell a story. This. This is one guy who I, I believe his name was Immerslund. Mm-hmm. He was um, a Norwegian guy who grew up in Mexico. Yeah. And then later his family moved back to Norway. Mm-hmm. He became associated with like the National Samling Party, which was the fascist party of Vidkun Quisling. But he thought they were too moderate. He was really into like sort of Norse paganism. He was also very gay, apparently. <laughs> Just what is with these gay fascists? <laughs> I don't know. It's a thing. But is that a thing? That's like, true. It's a thing. It's a historical thing. Like it is was super gay, and the SA had a lot of gay yes. leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what happened is this Immersland guy, he and his guys actually, he actually and his friends got together, harassed Trotsky, because Trotsky was originally living in Norway. Yep. In, in basically, they harassed Trotsky to the point that the Norwegian government deported Trotsky, who then went, ironically enough, to Mexico. Very and then guy. this Immersland guy went to Spain, and I think he was in with the phalangists. Yep. And literally, he got like, a really bad flu half like towards the end of the war and his friends had to drive from Norway all the way down to the Spanish border and then drive him back. He was like shivering in the back of the car the entire way. Cause he was just like so sick. I mean, yeah, this guy had great friends, but I'm just like, these are the kind of like unusual characters that show up in the Spanish. What a weirdos. Yeah. There are lots of, lots of oddballs, lots of adventures. Some of whom are quite badass. Some of whom are very just weird. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hartman was certainly, I guess, on the more hardcore side of things. It, he reflected the Legion mindset. The, yes. The, 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 the Legion, Legion is... What uh, is the motto of the Legion? The motto of the Legion is Viva la Mirte, Long live death. Long live death. Long live they, death. They would rather die. It is an honor to die. It is an honor to die. Right? Than to live. Than to just live a... Yes, it's an honor to die for Spain and the Legion. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, they and it's still their motto to this day. So they they were a very hardcore mindset, and uh, they had, unlike the Requets, well, I guess this was an attitude throughout Spain. They they had very very little sympathy for prisoners of the International Brigade. Yes. The... So when they captured Spanish prisoners, the conduct was generally to just capture them and send them to a prison camp of some sort, as you tend to do with prisoners of war but when it came down to the international brigades which had entered the war at this stage officially well they had been in the war for a little bit now they've been at the war since almost the beginning they they had no sympathy because they viewed them as these outside invaders mm-hmm. influencing what should have been just a spanish affair and screwing things up and prolonging the war yeah. by their existence and they had no sympathy for any of the brits americans canadians Frenchman that they captured. It should be mentioned here, the International Brigades were crucial to the defense of Madrid, because in 1936, the first year of the war, the Nationalist forces tried to take Madrid mm-hmm. and were repulsed. And so a lot of a lot of people blame that on the International Brigades. And the International Brigades did fight very well. They were very... They're very well trained. At they're v- well trained. They were good fighters. Mm-hmm. Good morale. They were they were probably the best fighters on the Republican side. I would yep. say, and yeah, they so a lot of 
Spanish nationalist soldiers blamed them for prolonging the war. Yeah. So they they and denying them an easier victory. Kemp's kind of in this awkward position, whereas previously he'd been fighting Spanish anarchist militias. He did at a few points come up against Irish, Canadian, British units, English-speaking units, which was very, very uh, uncomfortable for him at times, especially because he didn't necessarily fight, expect to be put up against the international brigades at any point in this war. He was trying to fight to stop the Spanish communists who were being funded by the Soviet Union and end this war, right, in his mind. But he was now fighting against fellow Englishmen, as far as he was concerned, which which made for a pretty awkward experience, especially as he he started seeing atrocities, which he tried to prevent. Um, and also just the harsh discipline of the Legion definitely rubbed him off the wrong way. There was a there was an incident where a soldier took off his hat to like kind of take a break but it you know it's a uniform component and he was outside so a a um a junior officer went up to him and said legionnaire put put your hat back on that's an order and the legionnaire said basically fuck you <laughs> you can't i've i've had it with this war i've had it with you fuck you you know it was just a guy at his wits end and um kemp being a responsible officer immediately intervened and said like you like you're under arrest because you you clearly violated a mili- lawful military order, right? And the guy wasn't being a total dick to you. You're fucking under arrest. You, uh, junior officer, give me a report, right? And then we'll we'll court martial this guy. And then eventually all the paperwork gets settled and this guy's arrested and stuff. Without any further incident, he goes to his commanding officer, this this colonel, and he says like, "Here's like the report. Here's what happened. Here's my eyewitness report." And the colonel says. You know, you could have just resolved this with the fucking single round. And he's like, excuse me? Is this like, use your pistol next time, sir. Like, use your pistol next time, senior Kemp. Fuck off. <laughs> that was the mindset of the Legion. It was harsh, harsh discipline. Very much so. Uh, he mentions a lot of, let's call it, um, physical coercion in the form of fists to noses. Especially if things weren't done, things weren't done well. If standards weren't maintained, it was a it was a pretty brutal culture. It was a very very brutal culture. Um, so, and part of that was was when they captured international soldiers, there was no sympathy. He witnesses an execution for the first time, like as like on the national side, the, an actual atrocity. He witnesses being committed for the first time in the Legion. He complains about it immediately because it goes against every bone in his body as an Englishman. Like, why... Why I, are you just shooting prisoners yeah. and surrendering? and I think yeah. they were two French prisoners that he, he just observed getting shot. Yeah. That they clearly had the facilities to take, that they clearly yeah. could have... And who clearly, like, you know, threw up their arms, okay, we're yeah. done, and then the, the Legion they, guys just, against the wall, bang, bang. Yep. Yeah. And there was, like, in some of the... Sometimes, like, people had said that they deserted, and they just shot them. Mm-hmm. Right, even though like some there were cases where people were press ganged into the international brigades, it did happen, and they were all shot all the same. He was not a big fan of that. There's a famous moment in the book where he finds an Irishman from Belfast who is a. Is it actually famous? Well, it's just a notable moment. notable moment in yeah, the book. Okay. okay, 
where and who is a deserter from the international brigades. international brigades and the uh well, well he claims to be a deserter it's yeah. not totally clear if he was because he kind of wanders into their lines mm-hmm. he's still armed but he immediately shoots up his hands i says i surrender and immediately they bring over Kemp because this guy speaks English. They're like, Kemp, can you deal with him? So he mm-hmm. he talks to this guy, and this guy explains that he was a he was a merchant seaman, and he mm-hmm. he got drunk one day, <laughs> woke up and found out he oh shit I'm in the International Brigade now, and mm-hmm. we're going to be fighting the fascists. And at the earliest opportunity, he said I defected. Yes, but there was no real way of proving that. Yeah, no, and I'm. Read straight from the book here. I was not absolutely sure that he was telling the truth, but I knew that if I seemed to doubt his story, he would be shot, and I was resolved to do everything in my power to save his life. Translating his account to Cancella, I urged that this was indeed a special case. The man was a deserter, not a prisoner, and we should be unwise as well as unjust to shoot him. Moved either by my arguments or by consideration for my feelings, Cancella agreed to spare him, subject to Demora's consent. I'd better go and see Demora at once while Cancella would see that the deserter had something to eat. Demora was sympathetic. You seem to have a good case, he said. Unfortunately, my orders from Colonel Penardonda, Penardonda are to shoot all foreigners. If you can get his consent, I'll be delighted to let the man off. You'll find the colonel over there on the highest of the hills. Take the prisoner with you in case there are any questions. Your two runners is escort. And they're going along. He says, It was an exhausting walk of nearly a mile with the midday sun blazing on our backs. Does it get any hotter in this country? The deserter asked if we panted up the steep sides of the ravine the sweat pouring down our faces and backs. You haven't seen the half of it yet. Wait another three months, I answered, wondering grimly whether I should be able to win him even another three hours of his life. It's a very weird exchange. Yeah, they're Time just like the talking weather. about the weather as like... This, See, guy. this guy's might get executed in the next few yeah. minutes. Yeah. And then uh, when he talks to his actual... Um, like the colonel. The colonel, Colonel Penderona, he says... Um, Is it Penderona? Penardonda, sorry. Penardonda, yeah. Penardonda. We're mispronouncing We are not that. Spanish speakers, guys. We speak no Spanish. Apologies. Yeah. The colonel did not look up from his plate. No, Peter, he said casually, his mouth full of egg. I don't want to ask him anything. Just take him away and shoot him. I was so astonished that my mouth dropped open. My heart seemed to stop beating. Penarodonda looked up, his eyes full of hatred. Get out, he snarled. You heard what I said. As I withdrew, he shouted to me, I warn you, I intend to see this order is carried out. Yep. So, Kemp has to go and... Tell the guy... Sorry, sucks to be you. <laughs> Well, he's a li- he is actually a politician. He's like, yes. I don't have any control over the situation. Yeah. Actually, this is exactly what he says. He says, I've got to shoot you. A barely audible, oh my god, escaped him. Briefly, I told him how I tried to save him. I asked him if he wanted a priest or a few minutes by himself, and if there were any messages he wanted me to deliver. Nothing, he whispered. Please make it quick. That I can promise you. Turn around and start walking straight ahead. He held out his hand and looked me in the eyes, saying only, thank you. God bless you, I murmured. As he turned his back and walked away, I said to my two runners, I beg you to aim true. You must not feel anything. They nodded and raised their rifles. I looked away. The two shots exploded simultaneously. On our honor, sir, the senior of the two said to me, he could not have felt a thing. Bit of a... He says that was yeah. his worst experience of the war. Reading that, like, yeah, it, it's, it's not the read. nastiest thing he ever sees, but it's... Because yeah. this guy, again, just wandered into camp 
No idea who he was. He might have been a drunken sailor for all we knew, yep. who had nothing to do with the war. But and he might have been the biggest communist in the world, yeah. just trying to spy on them. Yeah, we have no idea, but we don't know his name because anyway. I don't think he gets his name. He just he no. just says I'm from Belfast. Yeah, he's buried somewhere in Spain, yeah. probably in an unmarked grave. Yeah, yeah. If 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 buried at all, yes. So. That, that's the that, that was the Spanish Civil War. It was nasty. It was brutal. And Kemp is very morally conflicted with that whole event. Yes. He, he's not... He doesn't seem to be a big fan of the leadership of the Legion, but he no. does respect the fighting qualities of the yes. Legionnaire. Yeah. And it's a very complex He seems to respect General Francisco Franco, but yeah, he's a bit... Oh, he mentions, like, he, en- he actually challenges his... Like, it's also, it's like a Breaker Morant moment. Like, he challenges up the chain of command. Like, who gave you orders to execute prisoners? Mm-hmm. He goes to, like, the captain. The captain says it was the major. And the major says it was the colonel. He keeps going yeah. up and up. And he gets to that major, that colonel that he talks to, right? Yeah. Because he does interact with him a few times. But this guy is just like, yeah, it was me. Fuck you. <laughs> it's like, did this order come from Franco? He's like, no. Yeah. This is, this is me. And um, Franco never personally signed off on it no i'm sure he was aware of what was going on but oh yeah it, no. just something didn't given the context of the war and how how messy it was and how many fronts were mm-hmm. all simultaneously being fought on at this time because again it's it's not like a it wasn't like the american civil war where you have this de- clearly defined no. border although the there was right? yeah basically what happened is the spanish force the nationalist forces started in the basically the south of Spain right. and the northwest, and then they slowly linked up in the west, and then they pushed into Catalonia, which was kind of the right, right. Republican stronghold. That's that's northeast Spain, for anyone who doesn't know. Yep. And then down into finally taking Madrid at the end of the war. Which is still a disaster. That's yes. Still, that's, that's a complex... That's a yeah. lot of fronts. I Yes. Yeah. It should be noted, though, like, if you look at the actual battles for who wins, like... The Nationalists win like four battles for every Republican victory. Mm-hmm. The sides were not evenly matched. The, okay. the the army and a lot of that has to do with the Army of Africa and just how superior of a fighting force it was to literally everything on the Republican side. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I th- there's a point actually where he uh, he bumps into some Catalan uh, soldiers. Catalan Catalonia was the uh, Republican stronghold. I, which I is still wanting to be independent to this day. Yeah, which still, yeah, still, and still, they're the most. Uh, there's still um, political ramifications of this war between the tensions between Madrid and Catalonia. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, basically, on the third night, we were favored with three deserters from across the river who crept up to our wire in the darkness and shouted to us to let them through. They were Catalans, poor nervous wrecks of creatures half-starved and wretchedly clad. Under the influence of food and cigarettes, they chattered freely to us. According to their account, which their own appearance supported, the enemy opposite us was in a state of alarm bordering on panic and stood to all night in expectation of an attack. They complained bitterly of well-fed political commissars who came from Madrid or Barcelona to give them lectures on the fighting spirit or the meaning of democracy. I often wondered, but never found out, what happened to deserters after they were screened whether they were allowed to live in peace or were conscripted into our army. That's the Republican forces basically by the end of the war. They're, when Madrid falls, they were shooting at each other rather than the nationalists mm-hmm. when it rolls in. It was, 
as as a one, a one book I read once, it was a beleaguered and demoralized army that finally surrendered on April 1st, 1939. Not much of an army. Not, not much of an army at that point. So, we are coming towards the end of the war here when we describe that incident with the, with the Irish prisoner. Uh-huh. Kemp does fight in some very, very significant battles that I won't try to pronounce what they are but he does fight in some pretty significant battles some of the biggest set piece battles of the war because again like the the republicans have their back against the wall and so do the international brigades and they're fighting hard because he might not be able to go well the international brigades are actually actually are sent home and i believe it's i believe it's late 38 okay where like they basically say okay Um, we need to not need to go so in the battles that camp takes place uh, takes part in the last few battles he is still coming up against the oh some team. people stayed like of no no i mean will, like but... he mentions at the end that yeah. he's still the last battles that kemp personally produced i'm not talking about the end of the war itself but just kemp's final battles are against the international brigade yes yeah. with the legion so he uh he fights the mackenzie papineau at one point he fights the the british brigade at one point um he does run into them. He does engage with them. Obviously, a captured an Irishman, so he's, he's mm-hmm. probably... Who knows what unit that guy was from, but like he does fight them at the end, and he's very seriously wounded. He's actually wounded the first time. Um, I think it, it was a... It was like a grenade... Yeah, I think the first one was was a grenade blast um, on his left side. I think it was like left, left arm or left leg or something. No, sorry, left arm, because his left arm's in a sling. He goes back, and they actually let him, like, go up to the front again. Despite his arm's in a sling, he's just like, it's not that bad. And they're like, okay. Now, not that bad is one thing. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but the wound gets infected. And they're like, dude, like, your wound's infected. And um, he's just like, it's fine. And he keeps fighting, he keeps fighting through these pretty big... Bu- battles against i guess i guess See, that's why i say kemp's kind of an ernst younger figure yeah. like just he's well from what i understand yeah. like it actually was not that bad like it wasn't mm-hmm. like he had been shot he like he like he got like cut on the arm right but it was like a significant enough of a cut that it was like a burn that they put his arm in a sling but he's like i can move my arm and it doesn't it's it's not that bad mm-hmm because when he actually does get seriously wounded, he doesn't he doesn't go. Let's go back to the front yes. again. That's, yeah. So yeah. I want to emphasize, like he's not a superhuman. Yeah. He's not like younger, which. Younger though, younger though knew it. Younger though, despite getting he would he would rest when he was wounded too. No, he was a gorilla. All right, Kemp's in between okay, yeah, younger Kemp's and other people. Yeah. He's he's super he's super chill because it's actually because according to his own account like it's like a cut yeah. and he's like you're you're but the issue is it gets infected and then he's like shit I maybe should go back to the hospital and he's he's commanding his men again um, it's either a grenade or a mortar it's not totally clear what it is because he kind of de- something blew up next to him. something <laughs> blew up next to him and. He's glad, he mentions very early on in the book, he's glad there's no Mills bombs in this war. A lot of the grenades are like concussive grenades. Mm-hmm. Very little shrapnel, but just big a big bang. It actually knocks out a bunch of his back teeth. And he wakes, he like, he, he gets up and he, he describes it as a mouthful of pebbles. Yeah. And he's like, what is that? And he spits it out. And 
as it comes out, it's like all of his back teeth yeah. in pieces. Ouch. Those are where the pebbles were. And then, like, he sees that come out of his mouth. He immediately, like, vomits. And he vomits blood. Yeah. And he sees that, like, this pile, It's as he says, it, it's a growing deluge. Sarge, I don't feel so good. <laughs> and he vomits again. And then at this point, the, the colonel comes up to him and is like, are you okay, Camp? <laughs> he literally says, are you Senor okay, Camp? <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. And he turns around and he doesn't, he's, he tries to say something. He remembers, like, he was still lucid, totally lucid. He said, because he was likely in shock. And he tried to speak, but he couldn't. His lungs were burning. He had actually inhaled, like, the, he had burned his throat, is what they discovered. He had burned his, like, esophagus, third dairy bird going down. So he, like, ate, he literally ate the grenade. And he, he just said, like, <laughs> he just like kind of nodded his head like no I'm not <laughs> so he's not a superman he didn't try to like go like bayonet charge the enemy after that he was just like oh no get me the fuck out of here so they, they eventually get him to the hospital where he runs into Hartman again Hartman shoots at the light and yeah. <laughs> he, he recovers eventually amazing um, he, he mentions a lot of the doctors had great war experience from facial disfigurement injuries which were one of the worst things that you could ever ever uh deal with it's like especially like mouth mouth injuries yeah it's one thing to kind of lose an arm or leg that's that's brutal it completely changes your lifestyle but when you can't eat properly and also the other issue is everybody in spain apparently is an alcoholic <laughs> he has he's a he's a wounded he's a wounded war hero now right yeah. and they're winning the war they know they're gonna win the war like and then and then i guess as he, right after he's wounded they send in the international brigades back home it's like you we're gonna win the war and everyone's offering him beer and he's too polite to say no but again he's burned his fucking lungs <laughs> and his mouth his jaw is like broken so but he like will always have a swig of beer and it would like burn him but he'd have to keep a smile like thank you because he's like little old ladies would yeah. give him wine and stuff and he'd just be like thank you and coffee and all you know all his friends and stuff yeah. would give him things and always drinks <laughs> <laughs> He was no, you know, he didn't dislike alcohol, but, like, he did not like that experience. Also, I feel like your average Spanish legionnaire probably is a higher tolerance yeah, than your yeah. random person. Yeah, he mentions the Feels like a hard-drinking like, like yeah, unit, yeah. Like, the whiskey and the brandy they had was really bad. He remembers, like, it was just, and bad wine. Like, it was, like, the most disgusting alcohol he's ever had. It wasn't, it wasn't, like, Italian, uh, beautiful Italian wine or anything like that. It was, it was crappy. So he, anyways, he's he's recovering in hospital. He gets back to his unit very briefly, um, but like the war is basically over, and he, he he doesn't take part in the final siege of Madrid. Yeah, he actually sees he goes back to his unit, the his, his bandera in the Foreign Legion. He bids farewell to his his unit one last time in Madrid. Actually, he goes to they now liberated Madrid, visits his unit, and. Um, you know, he, because he had gone, after he had been in the hospital, he had gone on, uh, on, on leave back to England for a few, for I think two weeks again. It's like, they gave him like two week leaves all the time, which is kind of weird. But he comes back through the French border for like the fifth or sixth time or whatever. It's funny because he keeps, he also mentions he keeps running to the same border official. 
and he's like more and more battle scarred each time and then the, he's like the court official's like what are you doing down there he's like i'm a journalist and he's like no you're not <laughs> and then like i like yell at him you're a fascist probably you're not a journalist you're lying to me anyways your stamps your passport's approved <laughs> it's like he keeps running the same guy yeah. but anyways <laughs> Because like, I can't do anything, yeah. right? Cause it's there like, were, apparently, as I yeah. said, the French... There were literally French fascists that trained no, in No, this the... guy This guy was a Brit- Britain. So oh. he's a Swedish guy. Oh, yeah, okay. Because yeah, he was... So he was, like, from... He, had a, he described him. He doesn't name him, but he has, like, a Swedish accent. He was an older gentleman. He was a bit of a lefty, but he worked in France as a yeah. British, like, uh, foreign office yeah, official. Because there were literally French fascists who trained in the woods, like, just north of the franco-spanish border and yep. like sent guys down mm-hmm. to join the the nationalist side this guy was not french though he's he yes yeah and he was just like a weird swedish lefty guy that yeah. just happened to work he just happened to speak english and worked in france mm-hmm. he's some weird guy but he, he kept he kept running Wait, into we're going in there yeah <laughs> why are you going in there he's, so anyways he comes back and um because on his the last time he goes on leave to england uh, he has to get special permission just because I'm not sure what the context he, he goes into the context. I don't remember the exact context, but he goes back to England because of his role in the Legion. I think he has to write a special letter to Generalissimo Francisco Franco, who's the leader of all the now winning nationalist forces. Franco personally approves his leave pass, but Franco's just interested. It's like, wow, it's an English officer under in my army. Interesting. So, when he comes back, he gets a personal invite from Francisco Franco, and um, that's kind of where the book ends. That's kind of where the book ends. Him meeting Franco, Franco thanking him for his service. He describes Franco as a dark, short man, because Franco was actually five foot two. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was, a, he was a short he was little a guy. Short little guy, and mm. you know when he met Hitler, I think Hitler probably rubbed him off the wrong way making fun of his height or something he must have because yeah. they really didn't like each other no hitler and franco were not not Pro- fond of each other did, despite hit- all the things that the germans helped the spanish with yeah and yeah. despite the fact some of the spanish fought in world war ii on the eastern front hitler and franco did not like each other they had an intense no. personal dislike of each other yeah. i think that might have been because franco 52 and Hitler 5'9", so you're yeah. saying Hitler probably made fun of Franco's height. He probably walked in and didn't realize it's Franco and be like, I didn't know we had a dwarf for entertainment. And Franco stormed out probably. That's exactly how it happened. Yeah. I, I, I was there, man. Yes. I saw it myself. But yeah. anyways, a very, and also Hitler was very clearly trying to turn him into a puppet state. And he was like, no. Yeah, no. No, that's not happening. Like, we're not German. We're, yes. we're Spaniards. Yeah. Sorry. So... He saw that, and he was like, I don't care if they're Soviet or German. Feel free to give us your tanks, man, but yeah, we're the ones that are going to win this war, not you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and this, we're the ones that, that are going to control our country. Yes, and while German help was invaluable at getting the Spanish nationalist forces into Spain, because actually there was a very mm-hmm. important airlift, this war was won on the ground by the Spanish Foreign Legion and the yep. Army of Africa. And just to a lesser extent, the Requets and the Phalangists. Yeah. Yeah. So, shit, we didn't even talk about Guernica. We're going to have to do a full Spanish Civil War podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get into Guernica. Yeah. Kemp talks about that too, but if you want to if you want to learn more about all this stuff... Um, oh, sorry, I really quickly, he, he ends a meeting with... Um, 
because again, it's the first part in the trilogy. He ends the meeting with Franco very ominously. Franco asks him, "What are you going to do now?" And he's going to. He says, "Well, I just fought in this war, but I guess I'll enlist in the British Army now. I don't know what else to do. I have some experience, and I don't really want to be a lawyer." And Franco says, "There won't be a war." And that's where the book, <laughs> yeah. that's where the book ends. Nineteen thirty-nine. It's like it's literally like. What, like August 1939 or something. I'm amazed at someone who is such a successful statesman in general didn't see that one coming. Well, no, he was... might have. He might have just said that to like, as a as like a as like a reassurance thing to Kemp. Yes, like because he because Kemp just fought a war. He was wounded yeah. three times, mm-hmm. and his he still says like his lungs still kind of hurt as he's talking yeah. to Franco. So because he literally ate a grenade. Yeah. So he, so Franco's like, you know what, like. Yeah, don't worry about it. I don't think they'll, you know. Maybe. I think he's he's basically telling him like you're gonna have a good career. It's yeah. gonna be peacetime, and then you can train people, and yeah. you'll you'll enjoy life. Yeah. Like the war. The it war also could over. be. I think a lot of people thought that if there was gonna be a war, it'd be like a short thing that wouldn't yeah. really be. It, it wouldn't be another world. Franco war. probably knew there was gonna be a war, but he just like yeah. he was just like a private meeting with a guy. He was just like, ah, there probably will. You'll be okay. Yeah, was what he was saying. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's where the book ends quite ominously. And then he goes, uh, the next book is his World War II experience. Yep. So, a very, very uh, interesting book. Again, we, we, shit, we didn't even get into Guernica. We didn't even talk about, like, the, like, this, this, uh, the, the Alamo, what was it called? The big battle. Uh, the Battle of the Alcazar, or the uh, Alcazar. Alcazar. The, of, the Siege of the Alcazar. Uh, we didn't even talk about, like, his, his own, like, like, Stalingrad experience, basically. Yeah. There's a lot in this book. And this, it's only 160-odd pages. Yes. So it's very uh, impressive. This you, book actually has you know. just been published in 2020 for the first time uh, since it, it was out of print for a while. Mm-hmm. It was originally published in 1957. And it's back in print thanks to, well, my friends at Mystery Grove Publishing, mm-hmm. who are doing some great work at trying to find... Books, a lot, lot of which are military memoirs that have been out of print for a long time and putting them back in print. And this book, you can get it. It's Minor of Trouble on Amazon. And it is only twelve fifteen Canadian. It's pretty cheap. Uh, $12 only. $12. Tw- 12, yeah, $12.15. That's like 10 bucks US. Yeah, 10 bucks US. Yeah, no, and it's... Can you get it, can you get it primed? Absolutely. So yeah, it's you know. Yeah, and it's it's a good like it's a good kind of a it's Am a, I allowed it's to a carry war this adventure. Book? Am uh-huh. I allowed to carry this book? Yes, you may. You, you want to hold it? No, I mean like I, I want to stock these books in my business. I, I you'll have to ask them. <laughs> Put in a good word for me. Sure. Mystery Grove, if you're listening. Yes, Mr. Grove, if you're, books. <laughs> if you're listening, Fire Force <laughs> Ventures wants your books. Anyways, um, yeah, it's um. It's, I think it's a cool, hopefully this podcast served as some, something of a primer into this book, because we, we didn't necessarily want to go into like a sequence of events bit by yeah. bit. We went a lot, I think, into the subject matter a bit more than which we usually is, which do. Which is important, cause because if you, if you go into this book without context, like I did, yeah. I was like, I had to like Google, I had to stop and like look something up every like yeah. page, because also they use a lot of Spanish words, and there's a lot of yeah. banderas, tarricos. There's there's a lot of Spanish going on. Yes, the Spanish Civil War is generally this not war very did well not ha- yeah this war did not happen in the Anglosphere, and unless you're a Spanish speaker or very well versed in the history, you might get confused. So again, mm-hmm. hopefully this podcast was something of a primer into this specific war and. Um, mind were of trouble if you are to get the book 
We'll have to definitely recommend in the description. Like you should listen to this podcast free free. Yes, book. yeah. Listen just, to listen to us. We don't spoil anything. We... we try never to like spoil we... or read read the. We're not audiobook readers. No, but yes, yeah. we tell some of the main events that occur. Yeah. But yeah, we. You know, this so, is a, this book especially yeah. I'd recommend I, out of. Out of all the books, this is just my personal opinion. This is one of my absolute favorite, but that's that's kind of because I'm I'm kind of a Spanish Civil War nerd, and uh, as, as compared to as compared to a you're more of a Bush War history nerd. Yeah. So yeah, Ro- Rody Boo. Yeah, you're a Rody Boo. So there's some um, towards the end of the book. There's a there's a very good final reflection by Peter Kemp on this, on well, I guess his experiences and. Spanish soldiers in general. Spanish troops, when well-led and properly disciplined, show superb qualities of courage and endurance. It was the pride of the Legion that it developed those qualities to their full. From the moment he joined, it was impressed on the recruit that he belonged to a corps apart, the finest fighting force he was taught to believe in the world. It was up to him to prove himself worthy of the privilege. Battle was the purpose of his life. Death in action was his greatest honor. Cowardice the ultimate disgrace. The motto of the Legion was... Viva la muerte! It's easy for more filmatic nations to deride this cult of death, but it is essentially in keeping with the Spanish character. It produced the best soldiers of the Civil War, men virtually impervious to cold and hunger, danger and fatigue. As an Englishman, I can only say that the thrill of serving with and commanding such troops was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Viva la muerte. La muerte. Long live death. Long live death. So as I said... Uh, Watch us get cancelled for this podcast and not the cancel uh, culture yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Why Why do you think that is? Is it just because of the political... I think it's because, yes, Franco Spain's been edgy. Yeah. Is it edgy? Uh, evidently. God, people gotta get a life. Yes. Anyways, uh, as I mentioned, I, I like... Um, I really like this book. It's quite short, but... It's a pretty good primer into the Spanish Civil War, I think. More more so than more so than just reading something strictly like chronological or academic, because it talks about the combat conditions from the perspective of the nationalists, which is kind of hard to get from a well native English speaker. Most so, English speaking sources in the war look at the Republic. Exactly, just because there's because yeah. most of the people on the national side only spoke Spanish and didn't. Yes. So it, it's very good because it's like, it's not a translated book. It's a direct Ang- Anglo sphere perspective on the conflict. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can interpret it. It's, it's not like he doesn't denounce anybody other than like people that commit atrocities. He doesn't denounce the international brigade. It's quite nuanced and it's, He's actually, he mentions at the end of the book as well, he actually like drinks beer with a bunch of wounded International Brigade guys and later on after the war he meets these people because a lot of them serve in World War II, right? In the British Army. So I'm sure he runs into them again throughout his life. Absolutely. He has no real qualms with what they did. He understands in the same way that he understands why he went to go fight for Nationalist Spain. But uh, that being said, it's a very interesting perspective book and um, I... I would love to carry this book. In addition to the other books I sell on my website at wireforceventures.com. My website, which I'm going to shamelessly plug. Uh, we sell, we're, we're going to be hopefully by the publication of this podcast, um, releasing a bunch of signed copies of Peter McAleese's book, um, No Mean Soldier, about uh, a, a Scottish mercenary who fights in 
Cyprus, Northern Ireland, Angola, Rhodesia, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Iraq, Colombia, and a few other places. So he's a pretty cool guy, and I've I've had the pleasure of uh, kind of indirectly chatting with him. So we're going to be carrying a few copies of his book. Obviously, we have um, Chris Cox's book, Fire Force and Survival Course, which go over his time in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, BSAP, and a whole bunch of other cool military stuff that uh, we constantly restock, including the world-famous Rhodesian breaststroke pattern. Also, if you like war stories, mosey on over to our friends at Commando Blog, who you may actually be listening to this podcast on their website. Yes. We know we've had a few issues tech-wise getting them on recently, but uh, they are being resolved. And um, yeah, hopefully you, hopefully some of you are listening on Commando Blog. Uh, they do all kinds of stuff that's guns and gun culture related. Guns, gun culture, <laughs> outdoor lifestyles. They do some war yeah. stories guns as well. Guns outdoors, guns indoors, guns in yeah. movies, guns in books. Yeah. Uh, yes, but yeah, lots. Any If you like things related to guns, military, outdoor living. Outdoor you know, living with guns. You know, manly stuff. Uh, you're Manliness gonna, with guns. Yeah, yeah. you're 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 gonna like Commando Blog. So do Absolutely. please do please check them out if you enjoy our podcast. And you may also be now listening to us on Google. What is it? Google Play, Google Music. Is that right? Spotify, yeah. and we'll be on Google Podcasts and some other places. Awesome. Very shortly, and hopefully, and actually, probably by the future. probably by the time this is released, we will be. Awesome. And uh, we're we're always trying to upgrade our equipment and stuff, and appreciate any feedback from you guys. So we are actually taking email uh, requests, and we're gonna put that on our website at Men Among Men Stories, very very soon. Yeah, Men Among Men Stories podcast at gmail dot com. No, no, no. Uh, actually, we have a better email. It's info at Men Among Men Stories dot com. We have that email already. That's true. We so we'll use that one. Don't use the other one. Okay, belay what yeah, I just the other, said. Yeah, the other one is uh, is not connected to our website, and we so our website is actually. I'll explain this to you too, because you might not you might not know how this works. But basically, like, there's gonna you should by the time of us releasing this see a contact form on our website, which will link to the info at menamongmenstories.com podcast. Anyways, um, if if you still can't get in touch with us, the best way is to find us at Men Among Men Stories on Facebook or Instagram. If there's email issues or whatever, which there might be because this is all subject to change. It's all a work in progress. But you can contact us there if you have any comments, questions, mm-hmm. queries, or concerns. But we are looking to upgrade our equipment and stuff and would very much appreciate any uh, support that you guys can give us over Subscribestar. We'll be upgrading a bunch of the tier stuff. We've got a lot of stuff uh, planned in, in the coming months and um, maybe revisiting some old books again. Otherwise, again, a very, very special thanks to all of our supporters there already on Subscribestar. We love you guys. A very special thanks to all those that are active duty or formerly um, military, law enforcement, fire for, firefighters, first responders, um, especially as we're already into uh, August 2021 at the time of recording this so it'll be the 20th anniversary of 9-11 next month um, mm-hmm. so think definitely think of the the firefighters and the, the nypd and the yeah. uh, what's the what new the, york fire department and yeah. ny yeah, yeah so all those all those people that um 343 of them 
that didn't come back. So think think about them this year because it's t- 20 years, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's crazy how time flies. But um, big props to you guys for doing what you do to allow us to do what we mm-hmm. do, which is read books and try not to get canceled by schizophrenic leftists. Yeah. So pull up, grab a chibouli, have a wonderful day, guys. <laughs>